Hey, everyone. If you like Plucking Up, can you please give us some love by rating our podcast and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts? It will encourage more people to tune in. Thank you so much. You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their pluck-ups and how they moved on and up to keep creating and building lives of purpose, passion, and impact. I'm your host, Liz Bohannon. Well, we all know that 2020 has been quite the year. And I know that especially when things get really chaotic, it seems like everybody's voices get really loud and there's lots of thoughts and opinions and things clamoring for our attention, right? And so I find it incredibly helpful to be really crystal clear and to know who are the voices, especially during times of crisis or chaos, that I'm really going to make sure that I prioritize, that I create space for, and that I tune into as I seek wisdom and a path forward. Well, for me, Ashley Eland is one of those voices. And so I thought, what better fun than to bring her onto the show so that she can perhaps be a voice of encouragement and wisdom for you too. In addition to being an actual friend of mine and a just genuinely great human, Ashley is a leader, a pastor, and a writer. She's the author of Humankind, How Reclaiming Human Worth and Embracing Radical Kindness Will Bring Us Back Together. In the first taping of this episode, yes, you heard that correctly, Ashley and I, you know, go a little rogue, go off script from what we normally tackle on this show, and we were having so much fun that we actually ran out of time. So that being said, this is actually a little bit longer kind of two-part episode than you're used to, and it's a little more like, I think, popping in on two friends catching up who kind of let the wind take them where it wanted to go. We cover so many topics from what it's like to work at the Willy Wonka candy factory. Yes, that is a real thing. (laughs) To her first major professional pluck up to Ashley's wild belief that radical kindness, which by the way, is not the same as niceness or politeness, is a powerful force for change and justice and growth and the mutual flourishing of all humans. I'm so thrilled to share this episode with you. Let's get going. All right. I am so thrilled to have you on this show. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Liz, thanks for having me. Your listeners cannot see me doing this, but I was literally doing a happy dance. It was good, you guys. Just to set the visual yeah, yeah. about happiness, Ashley has, we were just talking about it, these incredible dimples. So you got to imagine just dimples and some dancing and can you not be happy? So close wow. your eyes, envision that. And that is where we are today. I'm so excited for myself, for you to be on the show and to get to chat with you. And I'm really excited for you guys to get to listen into this conversation. Ashley, for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with you yet, will you just give us a little bit of an overview? And I would love for you to start a little bit 
from kind of way back. Who are you? Where did you come from? What was like the context of your growing up and those kind of early hints at who you might become? That's good because I'm usually worried that I'm going to go too far back. But now Mm -hmm. that I have permission, allow me to go back to Houston, Texas. Okay. Late 80s. Okay. I was born um, to two fantastic human beings who were very successful in their careers. Imagine oil and gas industry. Mm, Booming. Right. Like they, both my mom and my dad are go-getters and really worked hard in life. And so I'm their only child growing up in Houston. Um, was coming from a faith background. Both my parents were in the church, and so I was raised in the church. But from kindergarten through 12th grade, I went to an all-girls Catholic school. Mm, okay. That now looking back, I have so many reasons to be appreciative of that experience. And it's just so unique to say I wore a uniform for 13 years. Yeah. Didn't go to school with dudes for 13 years. Mm, And now looking back, that was super formative for a couple of reasons. One, I didn't know how to shrink. Wow. It just wasn't ever in my mind to play small because I was surrounded by women and young women and girls who showed up every day and there was no one telling them hey, can you put your hand down, please? Mm-hmm. And so that was a huge part of how I grew up. Um, watching my mother be an executive in an oil and gas field where her field was dominated by men. And so in many instances, she showed up as the only woman or the only person of color in the room. Mm-hmm. That was super formative. And then later on into high school, my dad uh, got really sick. And so as the only child and my mother, the needing to pretty much drop everything and care for him. Wow. Became super independent because I'm taking myself to track practices and basketball games. I remember zipping up my own dress for a homecoming. Mm -hmm. And those being some defining moments in my life of like, okay, I need to take care of myself. I was president of a couple of clubs or organizations in school, kind of was raised as a leader by leaders. And you were always just like, yeah, I deserve this. I deserve this space. I deserve this seat at the table. I'm qualified to be here. Yeah, it wasn't even a question to even ask about whether or not I deserved it. I think the filter through which I saw most of my childhood was through the racial filter um, and not the hey, as a woman or as a young woman, you need to question whether or not you're able to show up to the table and be effective. That's so interesting. That's like a weird upside to inequality, I guess, is that (laughs) just the worst inequality maybe numbs you a little bit to the second worst inequality. Is that fair to say? That's, I'd say so. I never questioned whether or not I was a leader. Yeah. So looking back now, I, I was in you know, I, I did speech club. And so now as someone who speaks regularly, mm-hmm. I can see how defining moments in my life led to where I am now. I never questioned whether or not as a woman I could lead. Yeah. us. You know what? That's so interesting to me because I did. And let me be clear. I'm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably not that big of a surprise 
But I was not like a shrinking wallflower in like middle school or high school. But from a pretty early age, I think maybe I talked about this in the book because mm-hmm. I have a moment where I remember I went to a co-ed school and it was a co-ed faith-based school, which I think sometimes can contribute to the hierarchical gender, what women and girls are allowed to do or not allowed to do. And I do remember the day where it was a some a kid in my class I was you know leading and I was running this thing called lip sync and you know it was like this dance and singing dance thing and I was like pretty into it I'm pretty competitive I'm pretty theatrical so I like have my bullhorn and I'm like you know screaming at people about how to do the proper jazz square or whatever it is and he called me a feminazi (gasps) and um and did a really derogatory motion and it kind of caught on and it became this nickname to basically like brand me as a really annoyingly bossy girl. I was a feminazi. And did that like ruin me? No. Did it throw me off the track of leadership forever? No. But from the age of how old are you in seventh grade? 12? From the age of 12 or 13, was it planted in my head? There is a cost associated with this. Mm -hmm. Like if you want to be liked And you don't ever want somebody to say something mean about you again. Every time you raise your hand, every time you speak up, every time you like outwardly enter into this role of leadership, there's going to be a cost. And what I love hearing about your story is that I think sometimes we can become a little hopeless, like, well, the patriarchy, like all women ever are always going to have to deal with this feeling of not being equipped or, you know, of there being a social cost to being a leader. But then I feel like your story is like, or not. That feels like pretty hopeful to me. Yeah. And it's hopeful in hindsight because here's the extra layer. I didn't go into a traditional business function. I'm operating within the church. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't see women leading to the level that I'm stepping into leadership within the church. But the foundation was there early on enough in witnessing my mom really like kick butt. Mm -hmm. Um, in her fields and witnessing the women and girls around me not apologize for being interested in robotics Mm. or government or other fields that are traditionally dominated by men. So it's by the time that I got to being interested in creating these nurturing, redemptive, hope-filled environments within a church context I noticed, yeah, I'm the only one and I might be the only one for a really long time until that narrative is shifted. But I had the experience early on enough to not let it deter me from stepping in. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. It's not that it doesn't exist in my story. It's yes. that early on in my formation, there were enough examples of being given wings and yeah. given free lanes to run that now I can take those experiences pull them forward into who I am as a woman in my current field and say, keep going to myself. Yeah, the foundation was there. It's not that you were shielded from it forever. Yeah. But also as a parent, that feels a little bit hopeful to me of like, if I can create this micro environment 
for my kid early enough on where it's like we are speaking so much truth about who you are in the world and why you were created and what, you know, equality and justice and empathy and grace and all of those things look like that by the time you do experience a different world and a different set of information that's coming, that there will at least hopefully be like the belief will have seeped into their bones in a way that will make them resilient to that. Exactly. There were inputs early on enough to combat the untruths. Yeah. And really, it wasn't even just about my mother. My dad being a supportive partner okay. to yeah. her was almost more impactful. Yes. Yes, it was. Than seeing my mom take the meetings in, in the executive suite and travel across the world. To see my dad, who was successful in his own right, go, if your mom has opportunities... We go with that. Mm. If I have opportunities, we go with that. If one of us is winning, we're both winning. And it doesn't have to be a competition within our relationship because he's holding on to some ego complex. I saw my dad love her by saying, go, do the thing. One of the things that I learned with RBG's passing that I maybe I didn't realize before, but she was really specific in all of her language and how she pursued, you know, legal change. She didn't refer to women's empowerment. She always referred to sex Sex equality. equality, And I love that because I think it's so critical and so foundational to the movement for equality, because I think what we miss so much in the women's empowerment conversation are the ways in which men are harmed in a patriarchal society. That's right. It's so easy to believe that in the patriarchy, men have the power and they have the privilege. True. Therefore, they benefit. They are flourishing while those, you know, who are precluded from that are suffering. And that's not true. Like the narrative of hierarchy is so damaging to the human spirit. Yeah. And you can't be a flourishing human and believe that I have birthright power or privilege over another that I am more deserving of that. And I also think for men who pursue equality, there is a social cost, right? right. Like the stay-at-home dad, let's just be for real let's about be this. Yes. That man is not getting kudos in the world like his female counterpart yeah. is. Yes, it, it is a fake sense of flourishing when the flourishing only benefits one of the sexes or the narrative that makes us the most comfortable or successful. Mm-hmm. And I think a deepening maturity in our definition of flourishing is seeing equality through the lens by which we are all contributing to the conversation mm-hmm. of rearing children. Mm-hmm of equality in the workplace, of uh, making injustices right in our systems and structures, we all play a part. And if we're not all playing a part, then we're actually the party that we think is winning Yeah, really isn't. They're not. It's a false sense of flourishing. And so I think, I mean, amen, no one could see me rocking back and forth while you were talking. I couldn't She's talk. I didn't want to interrupt. Right now, y'all. But I was just rocking because I couldn't handle it. Couldn't handle all the truth. <laughs> I really love that phrase. I don't know if you just coined it right here and now. You heard it here first, folks. A false sense of flourishing. I want to have the freedom to be able to ask the question of like, 
how are our brothers suffering in the patriarchy? And we have set up such a false narrative of us versus them, of this zero-sum pie that it's like, no, we just have to get ours, right? And and we just have to have more of what they have, as opposed to saying like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. What if what's better for us actually is better for men in our society? And what yes. are the ways in which we, as a society, like, haven't been asking that question of like, what are the shame narratives that are, because it's like, frankly, so many of the things that were like, well, women's empowerment issue, domestic abuse. And we're like, "Mm, is that a women's issue? Mm. Because the woman, yes, is like being abused and we should like treat that really seriously and we should handle that. Mm -hmm. Also, he is not okay. Yeah. Like the man who is literally physically abusing his domestic partner He is not fine. He is not flourishing. His heart and his soul and his mind, like he is, he is suffering. And out of that suffering, he is inflicting even greater suffering that has immense consequences. And so do not read this as like, we should take pity and we should not hold people accountable. But like, should we be asking the question of like, why is this a woman's issue? Arguably, men perpetuate far more domestic violence not all of it, but like, why are we as a society saying like we have a men's problem here in our this society? You know, like That's right. child pornography and human trafficking. Majority <laughs> of perpetuators are men. <laughs> I would highly argue this is a men's issue. Yeah. That is not right. Yeah. They are not right. They are not okay. And like, how are we as a society not like tackling the societal issues? And I'm, I am all for, like, let's rescue the children out of sex trafficking and out of child pornography. But, like, as a society, why are we not seeing it a mental and national health crisis? Yeah, that's right. That we have men that are perpetuating violence against children. Yeah. And I, I'd say, does it have to be a linear process? Do we have to first make right domestic abuse when it comes to women who are the victims and then mm, get to either good. the mental health or the, or can it be okay for some of us in this circle to say, you know what, what I feel called to do is to counsel and to rescue women and children out of really dire circumstances where they are not healthy and where they are not safe. While others of us, perhaps some men who might be listening to this Thank conversation you. say, my part of this equation. It may not be the women and the children and and rescuing the victims of domestic abuse. It might be showing up for the men who have no one to talk to or who have Mm -hmm. felt like they have been struggling with the sense of being able to confess what's been so wrong in their lives, to talk about their childhoods. Like, can we say that it's okay for all of us to take what we feel is like our contribution mm. and to work on each side of this equation at the same time versus saying, nope, we've got to fix this one thing before we can get to the next thing. You are now, just to give our, our readers and listeners, you are now a pastor of a, a church. Pastor. I've gotten, I have friends that go to your church and I get really fun um, Sunday morning or, you know, used to pre-COVID text messages with photos of you preaching, which I love just like in action. It's so fun. And you are the author of a book Mm -hmm. called Humankind. Yeah. And what's the subtitle again? 
how reclaiming human worth and embracing radical kindness will bring us back together. Y'all, I just need to say this. If 2020 has you in a place where it just feels like too much, where it feels like hopeless, where it feels like there's no path forward, where it feels like I either capitulate and say nothing and just try to build my own happy little life and ultimately side with the oppressor, or what is the alternative and we're all against each other and read Ashley's book. It is literally a balm to your soul or will be or was to mine um, of just like what radical kindness does, starting with our own heart. I think. And then the societal implications that it can have without shying away. It's not a be nice book. You're not saying just show up and be nice. You have such a voice and you have such a boldness and you are so quick and courageous. You are always speaking out about Mm -hmm. injustices and, and about the ways in which humans are not right and we are not right with one another and the ways in which we have to co create a more just and bright future. So you are not the poster child for be nice. Um, this is about, it's about kindness and how do we pursue justice and a better world through radical revolutionary kindness? It's not a message that is like, it's not clickbait. Mm. Anybody that I feel like knows me or knows Ashley, again, we're not be nice women. <laughs> Like we are, yeah. we've given our lives to that. justice <laughs> and to acknowledging the isms of the world and yes. of writing them. Okay. So it's like, that is a fundamental at this point. I'm sure you can say the same. It's in the DNA of my existence and who I am and what I am here on planet earth to do. I am not ignoring it. I am not shying away from it. I am giving my life to trying to move us in the right direction. And yet, what if I did that? in a way that invited someone that might be on the other side, that might be outside of that in and gave them a pathway to belonging and to wanting to be a part of that creative, co-creative, restorative process. But I will say it's not very popular. You don't get the hits. And I'm curious about your experience in writing a book like you did. Tell me about that. Well, I will say, first of all, that when I set out to write this book, the only major moment I anticipated for us was a divisive election year. Oh, okay. I wasn't good enough to predict like pandemic and even more dust, not the beginnings, but even more visible dust kicked up in the arena of racism Mm -hmm. and racial injustice. And your book launched in April. (laughs) Pandemic, book launch. Yeah. Good luck. And then George Floyd. And then that happened all within like a two month period of when your book on radical kindness launched into the world. Yes. And the number of times I wanted to reach into the universe and take my book back because it felt like it wasn't enough for the moment. Mm -hmm. So many times. But here's what I learned, Liz, to your point kindness isn't niceness or else it would be called niceness. Mm -hmm. It's different. Kindness is inherently meant for transformation. Mm -hmm. And so we have to back up and ask ourselves, why are we in this? Why are we in our fields? Why are we in these debates? Why are we on Twitter and Instagram? Why are we actually here? Because if the answer is, I just need to prove that my camp 
is killing it mm-hmm. and that I am right, then I think we're in the right moment. But if the question that we really want to ask is, do I actually want flourishing for everyone? Mm-hmm. Do I actually want flourishing for every single person in the world? Or are some people not deserving of it? Okay. Yeah. For, for the reasons that I get to dictate, then we will forever be in a huge big mess. Mm-hmm. If we can say, I want flourishing and abundant life for everyone, then kindness has to be a part of the equation. Unfortunately, though, because we love being applauded and for others mm-hmm. to say, yep, you're right, that other person's wrong, get them, you know, hardcore side eye, like because that's where we're at right now, kindness seems flimsy. Yeah. And so here's the deal. If you choose to step into kindness it will feel a little bit like you're losing. You won't necessarily get that same raucous applause. You yeah, won't yeah, get yeah. The, the verbal affirmation. Mm-hmm. You might get either, hey, that's not enough. That's you not mm-hmm. saying enough. Or that's too much. That's too much grace. And so it will ever feel like you are towing the line between not enough and too much. And I actually think that's the beginnings of a third way away from the binaries that we've created. And Mm -hmm. so if it feels like you're losing in the pursuit of kindness, that might actually be exactly where you are meant to stay put. April happens. We are in a civil rights movement Mm -hmm. for race equality in America. And you've just written this book about radical kindness and you're feeling like, "Mm, not enough. This is not enough for this moment. Was that totally internal or did you face criticism? Were there other folks that said this is not enough? That was mostly internal. I mean, that's like, if we want to turn this into a therapy session, I mean, we can just start there. Like most of my opposition is my own internal dialogue. Yeah. But I mean, we remember what happened. I mean, I have a beautiful friend named Austin Channing Brown who wrote this book, I'm Still Here. Mm -hmm. And so people are reading her book. People are reading Jamar Tisby. People are reading Latasha Morrison and all these anti-racist advocates and change makers and thought leaders. And I'm sitting here going like, the one Black woman who writes about kindness. What in the world am I doing? What am I doing? Okay, so let's stay with that a minute because that was my internal dialogue saying, Ashley, the one contribution you have to make right now as a Black woman has to be to the definition of anti-racism space. But for all of us listening, our contributions might not look like the majority. Mm -hmm. And that's not saying anything's wrong with the majority. Mm -hmm. That's saying Mm -hmm. the majority is needed Mm -hmm. for that moment. Yep. But it's also saying our contributions do have a part to play in the greater narrative. I am interested in a world where we are truly, we are truly wanting healing and justice and peace and restoration and to right the wrongs that have come against the oppressed in our midst. I'm wanting that. Mm-hmm. And I'm also wanting everyone around me, dare I say, even the oppressor, to experience a life that is better, that is healthy and flourishing. Mm. 
I do. And maybe I'm nuts, Liz. But that's that's a part of what I want. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think what you just did there was so important. You're acknowledging, and this is something that I feel like in the movement towards equality, we could do so much better. Those of us who would raise their hand and say, I actively want to co-create a world that is more just and more equal. What we could do such a better job of is acknowledging that we are a grand symphony of voices and that some of us are like the clanging symbol that is going to wake you up and that is going to make you so uncomfortable and that is going to push you to the edge of what you think you can tolerate. And some of us are going to use humor and some of us are going to use art and some of us are going to use a mechanism that truly is inviting and stretching a hand outside the circle and outside the club and says, come like you're welcome here and and there's a place for you and there is life and there is flourishing and that one isn't better than the other. Yeah. And that they actually really in order to make change they're all actually necessary. Mm -hmm. And if we could support one another and say, that might not be how I would go about sharing that message, but like that's going to resonate with somebody. And I'm grateful that you're being brave and I'm grateful that you're doing that. And how can I support you? I'm going to maintain my voice and what I feel called to, but I'm also going to cheer for you and I'm going to support you. And even in this conversation, I a little bit wonder if I've been guilty of making a judgment of like, can't everybody be more like Ashley? And that's not right. And that's not real. And that's not how movement change. That's right. It like happens. We actually do need a diversity of voices. I just think that the one that has hope for actual change and invitation is so minority right now. I know. I agree with that. And it grieves me a little bit, but it's all the more reason for those of us who are like literally hanging on by a thread to yes the fray of hope right now. It's such a fray. Like need to keep going. Okay, Ashley, I've never had to do this before. <laughs> this podcast is not over. Would you be willing to put something else on the calendar? We can't end it here. I've this has never happened to me before. I've never gone so far off the path. I've strayed, but it's so good. <laughs> Part two, my sister. Part two. We'll figure it out. Okay. This is good. All right, pluckies. I hope you are enjoying Ashley's inspiring wisdom and perspective so far. What you just heard was actually just the first part of our conversation. And like I mentioned at the beginning, we ended up talking so long that we ran out of time. So here is part two of our conversation where we pick back up and hear more of Ashley's story. Okay, so you graduated from high school and then what happened? Girl, and then I went to Los Angeles. I went to USC for four years and it was the best. It was the best experience. I loved being a student there because it exposed me to really my heart's desire of being around people who were different from me, who could teach me about their background and cultures and seeing people come alive in their areas and fields of study. I had great professors there. It was a really sweet time. I majored in international relations and I had this concentration on gender studies and peace and conflict studies. And so, oh my gosh, we yes. have been <laughs> the best of friends. Ashley. I know. Oh, I, know. <laughs> I was friends with all the poli sci kids. <laughs> just, 
It was, it sobered me up. Mm. I became a realist because I was taking courses like weapons of mass destruction and terrorism and genocide and religion and terrorism. And it opened up my worldview, but it also broke my heart in a new way in the face of so much pain and conflict. And um, for a minute there, Liz, I thought I was going to work for the CIA. When you say that it, it made you a realist, what do you mean by that? Just that it made you realize the reality of, of the world? Do you feel like in that process, some of your maybe younger idealism got a little challenged and kind of walk us through what that process of becoming more of a realist looked like? Yeah. I mean, remember I was an only child. I was the only child in my house growing up with my parents in an all girls private Catholic school in an upper middle class context where I was pretty sheltered and I made mostly good decisions, I'd say, <laughs> in high school. And so by the time I got to college, sorry, keep going. That's okay. I was just going to say, have you seen Big Little Lies? Yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Not Big Little Lies. Little fires everywhere. Yes. Okay. There's this line, and I can't remember. I read the book a long time ago. I'm sure it was in the book, but mm-hmm. there's a line in the show where Carrie Washington says to Reese Witherspoon, it's not that you made good choices. It's that you had good choices. It was so powerful. Yes. I just thought like that concept of like, yes, because I would agree. I've, I've made great choices throughout my mm-hmm. life. Throughout high school, I made good choices. Throughout college, I made good choices. But when we reframe that, it's not saying that's not true, but like it's acknowledging the fact that I had really good options in front of me and I made good choices based off of those really good options. Versus, you know, obviously somebody who makes quote bad choices, but when you actually look at their options were a lot less good across the board. I just thought that was a very succinct and powerful way to talk about how like we do have control over ourselves and our choices, but then also this kind of macro question of the opportunities that are in front of us and that they might look really different from one another. A hundred percent. And I'm so glad you said that because, I mean, we're having this conversation on a few different levels and the layers of it. I mean, I still was butting up against some systemic stuff that for me as a Black woman growing up in America, like I, I couldn't escape that. And yet financially, my parents were in a place of privilege. Mm-hmm. And so it felt like this, should I feel guilty for being able to step into some of these good options, but understanding that within the context of these good options, someone is putting me on a hierarchy, potentially based on the fact that I'm a woman and that I'm Black. I mean, it was kind of a maze or a fun house, if you would, to have to work through all of those layers. So by the time I got to college, I think I was protected within the bubble of my own understanding and was aware that those privileges were afforded to me, was also aware that here I am on the West Coast learning about the realities of people who live on the other side of the world from me, Um, some folks who live actually pretty close to me and are experiencing a different world than I ever had to even consider. And so that's why I'm saying it sobered me up because I realized, oh, Ashley, your bubble's been popped a little bit. Your bubble of positivity and your bubble of what the world could potentially be for everyone. I kind of got a really fast track lesson in systems and history and politics and war and how that really reinforces and changes how a person sees the world. 
by the time I got to college and was thinking through this new worldview that was presented to me, um, I ended up not going that direction, but my minor was in managing human relations. And I got the best, most amazing job right out of college working for Nestle USA. And it was just as delicious as it sounds. I was working in the confections and snacks division. Okay. Yes, girl. And learning so many new things in the discipline of human resources. And it was because of that job that I moved to Chicagoland and landed a position supporting the Willy Wonka factory of all places. Okay. That sounds like an absolute joke that you... (laughs) (laughs) It's not. (laughs) And then I went to go work at the Willy Wonka factory. That is... So good, and I'm so jealous that you have the word Willy Wonka on your resume. That's actually been a great conversation starter. So here's what I'd say to to any of your listeners who are like, do I go with the really sensible thing or do I just go for the thing that doesn't actually make sense? I'd say sometimes the thing that doesn't make sense is actually the best story to tell. Mm. And it's in you telling the story of following the trail of, like you were saying, creativity and the whimsical choice, not necessarily the choice that makes the most sense, that gives you a connection to people in a way that the sensical or uh, the most sensible choice would do. I remember when I was moving to Uganda, my brother, who's only a year older than me, who's quite sensical and his career path has followed, you know, a more kind of classic trajectory. I remember him really challenging me. I was sitting in the car in the parking lot of our apartment and I remember talking to him and him being like, well, you're just going to move to Uganda. And what if you're like there for a year and then you come home? Like, what are you going to tell employers like that you did for a year? And I just remember being like, if I can't spin a really interesting story about how my like global experience, because at this point I had no idea like what I was going to do. It wasn't right. sensical and it wasn't like no fancy jobs, no idea what I was going to do. But I do just remember being like, if I'm not getting a year's worth of just value in my life and what I'm going to be able to offer whatever my life looks like a year from now, like that's on me, you know? And so much of our life is just about like, are we walking in to an experience believing that there's a really interesting and powerful narrative there for us and lessons to be learned? And I just feel like it's, if we believe it, we find it. Oh, oh, this is going to be a waste. I don't want this to be a waste. I need to see this, this, and this for me not to categorize that as a waste Then we like get so myopic and like super focused on wanting to see these one or two outcomes because we're so anxious, right? We're so anxious that like that year will have been a a waste because we couldn't say that one specific thing happened. And then we become completely blind to the like 15 other nuggets of gold that were waiting for us there. And that is a, maybe someone needs to talk more about this. this idea of mining your life, mm-hmm. mining your own life for the stories that are already there. So often I was taught to chase the like cool story or the success story when really every step that I've taken in life has been an opportunity for me to find either the learning or the gift or the blessing or again, the whimsy in that particular step. 
And it's a discipline. We have to know how to look for it. Yes. And so for me to go to the Wonka factory and learn at however old I was by that time, early 20s, to be in a position where I'm having really deep conversations with employees that I'm I'm needing to fire who have been at this company for years and to connect at a heart level. But this is about your job, but it's also about you as a person and about your value that, that doesn't leave when you leave this company, right? It's about, you know, linking arms with folks and trying spree and sweet tart candy on the testing line and being like, that was my day. (laughs) That was my day. And that was fun. And um, learning a deeper appreciation for the people who do behind the scenes work that we never know about. Yeah. Pulling third shift. And that was the first experience I had making coffee in my office because I was trying to stay awake for my job. Yeah. So just all these different understandings and learnings that I, I gained around how to live with and love people well. And that job was phenomenal. And I loved it. We call that um, hunting for miracles. of just like your antenna's up. You're going, you're on the hunt. You're going to look for the miracle. Yes, that's right. So what happened after Willie? Like, where do you go from there? I imagine <laughs> that you were in the chocolate lazy river and you got out, you were telling yourself off. <laughs> it's funny. There were, there were two candy factories and I was not at the chocolate one. I was at the hard candy okay. factory that did like sprees, sweethearts, runs, nerds, those. But at the same time as, you know, right when I moved to Chicago, I knew no one, Liz, I knew zero humans really. And so I bought a dog who's still with us to this day. His name is Jasper. And he was my pal for a bit. But at the time that I started working at Wonka, I also found a church home. I was like, I, I'm not going to, my mother suggested that I find friends at like the grocery store, or the library. I was like, no, let's start, let's start somewhere else. I mean, it probably could have worked out again, more fun stories to tell, but instead, you know, I was in a hotel at the time. My apartment wasn't ready. And so I started Googling all these churches in the back of that binder that comes in every single hotel room and just kind of making a mental checklist of like, well, their website doesn't work. Nope. Or they don't have a young adults um, section. Nope. So finally I get to this church at the very, very bottom. I Google it. I rock up that Sunday in the middle of like heaps of snow by myself. And there's a gentleman on his way to the bathroom. And he, he goes, you look like this is your first time here. Do you want to sit with my wife and me? And that one invitation shout out to Tyler and Julie Grissom that one invitation sent me on this journey of the deepest richest community experience I've I've had in a really long time I sat with them and never looked back I never went to another church I, I rolled up to their small group and was instantly welcomed and some of my you know closest friends for those 10 years came from that small group And so about a year into volunteering alongside some of these young 20-somethings and volunteering at a high school camp, I remember being in the back of a room at this high school camp with some of my small group friends and almost audibly hearing this really beautiful invitation from God to quit my job and to give my life to pouring into and building transformational community for other people. Wow. In the church. I had no experience with knowing people who did this, who just quit their corporate job and slid into the church in full-time ministry roles. And I was, I was terrified because I I knew that the call was clear, but I didn't know how that was going to work. Whoa. Yeah. Okay. There's a few things that I want to point out. Mm -hmm. One, I love that you put on pants (laughs) and you left your house Mm -hmm. in the cold 
and you braved, and I don't say brave lightly, like walking into a room full of people that you don't know Mm. when you're by yourself is a challenging, difficult thing to do. But man, the potential gets opened up when we do that. And then for this couple, what was their name? Tyler Tyler and and Julie. Tyler and Julie, like there's some cheesy quote about like, it may be a small action to one, but to that one person, it might mean the world. Yes. Like Mm -hmm. again, like is anybody going to be like, Tyler and Julie win the Nobel Peace Prize, like CNN Hero Award for asking girl to sit with them at church. No, like it's not that impressive. It's not that big. But it's this small action of openness and generosity and awareness that can literally change the course for another human's life. Yes. And it's like, what if we all walked around in the world holding the enormity of like with a relatively small decision that's born out of just being awake and being a little bit willing to, I don't know, have an awkward moment or have something not work out, whether that's on the side of like, I'm going to show up and be the only person or I'm going to reach out to that person that looks like they might be a little bit lost, that it's just like, then the story goes to places that we never could have seen it. Never. Never. They, I mean, they kind of know, but I don't think they really know how that one invitation, one, one invitation, like you were saying, literally has placed me amongst a lot of other factors, obviously, in the position I'm in now. That's so neat. That is so cool. Okay. So you are also a minority in the sense that like, we talk a lot about in our community, how normally like we don't find our passion, we build it. And, you know, I often say things like if you are like sitting around waiting for like the voice of God to speak to you, (laughs) stop because it's probably not going to happen. You just need to go do the thing and experiment. And then here you waltz into my little podcast, (laughs) making me out to be a liar. You're not, you're not a liar because you can, it both can happen and both are true. Both are true about my story. So you're not a liar, Liz Bohannon. Um, So here's the deal with that. I would say there's maybe only one or two times where I felt like there was like a audible or like visceral nudge, right? And that was one of those times. So it's it's very, very rare. Um, but I just had this sense of like, you know, drop everything and give your life to this. Wow. And so I did it and I was terrified. I remember calling my parents, my dad specifically, in the parking lot at Panera, telling him, I'm going to quit my well-paying job. And I'm going to go work for a church. And I was petrified because here my parents had worked hard, corporate America, put me through USC. And I'm thinking, are they going to think I just wasted mm-hmm. blank, wasted something, wasted their money, wasted someone's time? And my dad, I'll never forget this. He said, honey, if God's asking you to do something, don't let me be the one to get in the way. That's some parental goals. Yes. It, it Truly, I just remember weeping in my like dusty, sugary Nestle outfit, <laughs> my, my uniform, just in the parking lot of Panera, just weeping. And I would not have said at that point that I knew exactly what would come next. Sure. So here's where we're going back to your wisdom, Liz, because I did have to build on the unknown I stepped into this job that I almost talked myself out of saying, like, I'm not, this is not exactly what I went to school for. This is not what I was trained in. But they're like, no, we want you to be here. Yeah. And so I made the job into something that uh, had my thumbprint on it. I could not have projected 
this. I could not have anticipated or predicted (laughs) where we are today in 2020. I went from being in the young adults college ministry to being a youth pastor for four years doing the camps. And I mean, had an absolute blast to telling stories at our church, to being a creative director and being behind the camera, directing specials and video, to then teaching on a stage on that platform as the bulk of my job, even though I was doing it here and there in those other positions, to then today having just stepped into a new role as essentially the co-lead pastor of our church. Mm -hmm. Yes, you did. And (laughs) listen, (laughs) to lead in this moment is not as glamorous as we might make it out to be. I know you know this, but I feel like every other hardship and every other position that I navigated had somehow prepared me for this. If you don't mind kind of pausing and taking us back, Mm -hmm. was there a moment in your story that you look back on and you can be like, okay, mm -hmm, yep, that was a pluck up. That was a mistake. That was a wrong turn. Like if I could have done that over again, had I known what I know today, um, we know that even in these more like mystical journeys where it's like, you know, we're building and one thing leads to another, that still the pathway is not straight and narrow or that not everything you signed up for and raised your hand for went off without a hitch. Um, So we would love if you would take us back to one of those moments. Okay. So there was a, responsibility I was given in one of my first jobs. And I was responsible for taking a considerable amount of money and parsing it out so that it made sense for an event that I was putting on for us to like hopefully either break even or even make some money back. So I was I was given the task of taking other people's money and making it make sense for this really big event. And I thought, you know what? I've done this before. This is kind of in my wheelhouse. Like this should be great. But then there were a couple of curveballs, Liz, that were thrown in there where we were changing the format of how people would sign up for the event. We were stepping into a couple of different unknowns that I thought were not too big of a deal. Well, the event happens. Final reports get turned in. I'm continuing along my merry way. And then the CFO. Emphasis on the F. (laughs) Right now. The The CFO sends me this email and asks me to join them in their office. And I knew that wasn't good because anyone with a C in front of it, unless they tell you (laughs) you're being awarded or, you know, like it's usually not. You're not chatting about post-it notes and Sharpies. Like, so I go up there and at this point, my manager at the time is there as well. And they whip out the budget that I had drawn up for this event. And I did not project those numbers well at all. We lost a lot of money. And you know why? Because I gave away too many scholarships. It doesn't sound like it was that big of a deal, but you have to understand, I excelled at a lot of things Mm -hmm. growing up. I made sure to not be the one who made big mistakes. Mm -hmm. But I think at that point in my life, at that point in my career, 
I was trying to prove myself. Yeah. So from that point on, I mean, the consequence was I didn't get to plan another event. So I did some self-reflection and going, okay, I think there was some pride in there where I should have, it should have been nothing for me to ask a couple of questions of people who knew more than I did to avoid that mistake. And I felt like I let down the folks who had trusted me with so much. I felt awful. Yeah. In that moment where it's like gut punch, you're sitting down, you're sitting across from the CFO. They're like, we lost a ton of money and this was your responsibility. Where did you go mentally? Like what is your specific, and and in this instance, but I at least find that I generally have a pretty well tread shame cycle that I go on that can start in a lot of different areas and usually leads me to kind of the same two or three really um, negative narratives that I have about myself. What is that for you? To relive this is awful. I felt shame, but it was a very specific brand of shame. Mm -hmm. It was the brand of shame that said, you messed this up for the women who are coming behind you. Yeah. And you messed this up for the people of color who are coming behind you. Mm -hmm. And because you were imperfect, Mm -hmm. now someone else won't get a chance. Oh, that's heavy. That is heavy. And I really, really identify with that from the gender perspective. I represent my kind or, you know, whatever, like this is on me to prove not just myself, but you know, exactly what you said for the women that will come after me. And then yes, a whole lot. And, and so, I mean, we're, we're, the visual is I'm sitting before these two white men having this conversation, fully realizing that I was in that moment owning up. Yeah. To my mistake. I mean, my, my posture wasn't, I was like, yeah, now looking at it, that was, I didn't do that well, but also feeling, I guess I felt nauseous, Liz, because I just, this is going to be the way that I'm remembered. Wow. And I don't know if that's true. Like looking back, I don't know if that's true, but I felt more than the weight of a balanced budget. Wow. I felt the weight of opportunity for, and I was in my twenties. So it's not like I was a well-seasoned employee. Totally. Yeah. That, and that, like that pressure to believe that we are remembered and known for our failures and our worst mistakes. I think that's very universal. Yeah. And I'm interested in diving into more of like, how much of that's just our own psyche? How much of that is reflecting reality of how we treat one another. And like, maybe this jump, maybe this is too much of a jump and this doesn't make sense. But I have heard like specifically in the context of marriage, right? That for every negative interaction that you have with a partner, that you need 10 distinctly positive interactions um, to balance out the budget, if you will. Yeah, that's a lot. You know, I experience this so much. It's so illogical that like in the world of social media makes it even easier to measure how inane we are as like a species. Cause it's like, you could literally read 10 reviews on something or 10 
super encouraging letters or notes from people whose, you know, lives have been impacted by you. And you're like, oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's awesome. And then literally 30 seconds later, it's just gone. I'm just like, I think you said something nice, but I like can't really remember the specifics of it. I felt it for a second. And then the negative remark, the negative impact, like I can tell you literally to a T, like this is who said it. These were the words that they used. This is where I was when it happened. Like it weighs so much more in our psyche. And I think that won't change unless we put a concerted effort towards making it matter more. Yes. My colleagues, um, her name's Anna. She has what she refers to as her smile file, which I think is so fun. And I've started a smile file now that she just like good emails, nice notes, encouraging letters. She literally just has a file that she drops it into so that when one of the hard things comes up, it's not that she's denying the hard one. There's something really good about leaning in and acknowledging and staying curious, even in the face of negative criticism. But it's her discipline of helping her psychologically balance that out. Of like, just remember that yes. one loud voice isn't representative of everything that you've done at this organization or who you are as a person and like a really tangible thing to go back and to remind her, like, look at the positive impact that you've made over here, which I think is really wise. It sounds like in some ways, even elementary that it's like, I have to do this thing to get my brain to work in a certain way. But I don't think I've ever met a human that doesn't feel that Delta between how we receive and how much positive feedback weighs versus that like I mean, you remember probably what you were wearing the day that happened, you know? Almost. I remember I was supposed to be on vacation that weekend, and that one meeting ruined the vacation. Of course it did. Just ruined it. And I, you know, something about the psyche of positive versus negative feedback, I also, I call it my encouragement folder. So anytime I get a positive email, I just drop it in there. And it's really fun to see over the years, just all the nice things people have to say about your impact in their lives. But I do have to say for these two gentlemen who I was having this conversation with, the other thing I remember about that interaction is how gracious they were. Mm -hmm. The harshest critic in that room was me. Yeah. Yeah. I also think it taught me something about now in my career, you know, called working in the church of career, but in my work now, the importance of collaborative leadership if I am hiring, if I am looking for someone to help out with a job or a team, this is even more reason to not try and tokenize the woman in the room, the person of color in the room, because there are weights bearing down that you will not be able to see. And they're not necessarily your fault, but they're there. Ah, that's good. And the way that that person either receives feedback from you or um, tentatively receives praise or encouragement from you will be impacted by the weights that have existed before they got to your team. Keep that in mind of like, if we're managing a team that's not necessarily as diverse as we even want it to be, there's a sensitivity needed in building that team. There will be unseen factors to take into consideration as we have performance reviews, as we talk about um, teamwork or even authority versus influence. Just to know that being with our brothers and sisters in those moments, being human in those moments looks like saying like, how are you experiencing this right now? What's the story you're telling yourself about why we're having this conversation and how can I help neutralize that for you? 
Ashley, thank you so much for that wisdom, for sharing your story, for being willing to go back to the face flushing, pitting out. I'm also, I feel everything in my gut. So I'm a big like instant nausea person and people that can handle anxiety or conflict or whatever it is without getting nauseous, my mind can't comprehend that. It is such a strong link between my brain and my belly. <laughs> that, like, I'm like, how did you do that? And then not have diarrhea immediately. <laughs> mind boggled by it. So I'm really um, excited to know that you're a fellow, uh, a fellow gut. I am a gut feeler. <laughs> I mean, it's true. One of my former supervisors, Liz, this is true, said, Ashley, you're a duck. You are a duck because you will appear just fine on the outside, but beneath the surface, you are just paddling at the fastest pace possible. And it's true. So my inner world could be just all over the place and not okay. But for better or for worse, I've learned how to hopefully not show that on my face. So um, I, I'm a gut feeler. For sure. Yeah, instead, it's reflected in your uh, grocery bill and how much toilet paper you've been through. Carl, that is so real. My husband just texted me. He's like, so the credit card bill is a little high this month. I'm like, we call that self-care. Self-care. And I wouldn't spend it if we didn't have it. Okay, here's the deal, though. Best thing that has happened to our family. Now we're really just going for We're in bonus, bonus mode. Best thing that happened to us in 2020 is in the great toilet paper, like, you know, scramble of March of 2020, we bought up a day. <laughs> and I'm just going to tell you that our life will never be the same, that we have oh no idea how we went decades without that without a bidet truly when now when we like travel and we have to you know use toilet paper we're like this we're animals like <laughs> what this is horrifying and we just need to get back home so we can use our bidet our four-year-old is like very committed to the bidet he just knows he knows how to use a bidet so he gets on there turns <gasps> it on kind of does a little booty squiggle <laughs> that made my ear oh man <laughs> But I'm just <laughs> if you hold things in your gut, you know, and 2020 is a hard year. I I maybe would encourage you to invest in a bidet. Maybe I'll just send you a bidet. Uh, d- oh, my gosh. If you do, I am live streaming that Liz Fork and Bohannon sent me a bidet. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Ashley. You are a treat. You are a treasure. And until I talk to you next, stay plucky. Liz, thank you so much for having me. It was a joy to be on with you. It was so fun. Y'all, thank you so much for joining me today. I hope, as always, that you feel encouraged, inspired, and a little less alone. I'd love to thank my amazing producers at Human Group Media for helping me put this show together. For updates and announcements about the show, you can visit lizbohannon.co or follow us on Instagram. I'm at lizbohannon and they're at sincerelyhuman or human underscore media on Twitter for them. Not for me because I lost my Twitter password a long time ago. (laughs) It's probably great for my mental health. All right, that's all. I'll catch you again in the next episode.